dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see the headlights on both ends of my day this country Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer M. Latsky, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. All righty. Well, let's just jump right into it. Um, Sounds like um, it's been an interesting week around here. We we saw cases of COVID-19 rise, um, diagnosed in, in, in Dodge City, and but we are seeing new cases kind of tapering down. So that's some good news. Um, yeah, I think, I think there was nine yesterday, they said. Yeah, so good news, good news. Um, or I'm, I'm looking at, or I'm, I'm assuming that is going to be good news. However, we are seeing that there's another plant in the news, uh, KansasCity.com, uh, that's the KC Star. They are reporting that more than half the workers at a Tyson Foods plant in Perry, Iowa, have tested positive for the coronavirus. Um, that's out of the Iowa, Pub- Iowa Department of Public Health. That's from May 5th. We are seeing that outbreaks of fast-spreading coronavirus have hampered production at four Iowa meat packing plants, including that one in Perry. 730 workers, or 58% of the workforce, Kayleen, they tested positive for COVID-19. And that's a report from the Des Moines uh, station WHODT. This is just, this is crazy, Kayleen. You know, we saw a, a Tyson's largest pork plant in Waterloo, Iowa had to be closed because of a similar outbreak. Um, what do you, what, what are you hearing from your friends in the pork industry? I mean, I really haven't, haven't heard a whole lot out of them, but I mean, I think they're seeing the effects of having the plants shuttered. I mean, the grocery store pickings are getting slamming some areas. I don't know. If they don't get it figured out, it's going to be tough. Well, and a lot of the reason why, you know, we know the the pickings are slim in the grocery stores is a lot of that fabrication of that retail package happens in the plants. You don't have plant workers. You know, we we no longer have meat cutters behind the counter. (laughs) Yeah, I was in the grocery store yesterday and I had stopped by the, the smaller one. It's not a chain. And needed some lettuce and went back to the meat case because usually they have decent meat and they have butchers back there that process the stuff and I overheard them say that they hadn't got all their order in from the meat uh, wherever they get it from and they weren't very very pleased about that the, the cases were full of bacon and lunch meat and the processed stuff but the cut stuff was a little, little slimmer than it has been yeah and I thought the prices were kind of higher, too. Oh, yeah. Because I went and looked for a, a, a chuck roast, and they had one, and it was probably three and a half pounds or so, and it was $36. Yeah. Um, you're going to start seeing more uh, higher prices at the case. Um, the fella, he shops at his local grocery store in his little town that he lives in, and I think he said he paid uh, 9 or $10 for two little cube steaks. So he could make, um, you know, uh, smothered steak. It's getting to that point where we need to really be mindful of that. And speaking of which, I had a conversation last week with Oklahoma Congressman Frank Lucas. Uh, he's going to be on later in the podcast. Um, that that whole conversation will be. And he, as a cattleman down there in Oklahoma, and his constituents who are cattlemen down there in Oklahoma, really have concerns about how. Um, the packing plants are making such enormous profits off the backs of the people that are supplying them live animals. And they're making profits off of price gouging at the stores. And so uh, the USDA has an ongoing investigation into this whole situation. Uh, Congressman Lucas, very bluntly, has, has put together a bipartisan coalition to sign a letter demanding um, 
answers from USDA quick, fast, and in a hurry, because the quicker they get those answers out of that investigation, the sooner they can turn around and write some laws and fix the situation. Um, so we're going to have that conversation later on, but it's a it's a major big deal when they are paying pennies on the hoof and they're making dollars hand over fist on on the consumer side. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's pretty pretty disheartening for cattle producers. Yeah, well, and uh, you know we're seeing that other plants. It's not just uh, pork. It's not just beef, but poultry is having the same problem. Uh, next week we're going to have a report in the paper from our colleague David Murray. He spoke with uh, a pork producer, a, a poultry producer, and a cattle producer on a call, and um, you know what they're seeing in, in the whole situation as far as their movement of their live animals through the system. And uh, it's it, everybody is hurting. <laughs> Everybody's hurting, sadly to say. But on a brighter spot, you've got pigs for the 4-H program that are, you know, your boys have, or sorry, your oldest son has two pigs, right? So how, how are things going there? <laughs> they're eating and they're growing and we've been trying to find a solution to water them because they keep dumping the water out and it's just kind of a mess. And so I got on Pinterest and found an idea and went and tried to gather all the parts and pieces for these waters that are made out of PVC pipe and that was kind of a task because I didn't want to drag the boys into the store and I didn't want to traipse through the store looking for all these parts and so between two places I got all the parts and pieces I needed well and then it turned out that there's evidently two different kinds of PVC there's a thicker one and then there's a thinner one yeah and I had mixed those two kinds up so I had to take them back you are learning so much more. I mean, they shouldn't have just an HGTV. They should have a farm GTV. Something. <laughs> well, and then I had ordered the pipe and it came in a 10 foot span. And I was just hoping it would fit in my Durango and it did. Woohoo! And when I got to the, to the lumber store, I asked them, I was like, can you cut this for me? Oh no, we can't do that. It gums up our, our saw. Really? Yeah, I think he just didn't want to do it. Yeah, I'm pretty certain he just didn't want to do it because anywhere else I've ever gone, if you need a, a cut or so, they'll charge you per cut. But Yeah, I would have paid for them to, to cut it. I mean, not a big deal. But oh. So we drove, drove through town with the, the pipe in the middle of the car. <laughs> you really should videotape this and, and create an <laughs> online um and an online how to uh, tutorial for everybody because I've met there are people that are in the same situation needing waterers for small livestock. So, <laughs> well, and then they sell the little the metal nipples for the pigs to drink out of, and the ones that I ordered didn't have a back on them, and they weren't as efficient as they needed to be, and they were more for a pressurized system, and this is just gravity flow. So, luckily, there's a place in Dodge that sells. The gravity flow ones. And mm -hmm. she gave me a discount because they were for 4-H projects. So. Amen to those good people. Hey, do you want to give them a shout out? The Trojan Waterers that are west of Dodge City. Nice. Well, thank you, yeah. Trojan Waterers, west of Dodge City. <laughs> you people do good work. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I tell you what, you know, ordering online and then going and picking it up, I used to think that that was like, you know, why wouldn't you want to just go in the store and go see and go, you know, go touch and all of that, you know, after having it forced on me, I don't know if I'm going to go back to a different way of doing it. Well, I, I got a, a Dylan's pickup the other day and I was rather frustrated with it because I know I added some stuff to my cart and I know it was there and it shows up nowhere. So I had to go back to town and get the, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> get the stuff. <laughs> There, you know, what's frustrating to me on the grocery pickup is now that's one where wandering the aisles, that's where I get my, my meal planning ideas or, you know, looking at the, the flyer and trying to figure out what's on sale. That's how I was taught was, you know, you, you eat basically what's on sale. <laughs> yeah. And I had thought I had a plan when I got my groceries and got home last night to make supper and it's like I spent 80 bucks where's it at yeah what am I gonna make 
Yeah. And one of the items that I was banking on wasn't in this the freezer. So yeah. It's frustrating. It, it really is. I I'm, I really can't wait until we can really get out and about a little bit more. Um, a friend and I, we were talking the other day about what's this going to mean for um, future conferences like, uh, you know, the major conferences like uh, Commodity Classic or NCBA or Farm Bureau and trade shows. Yeah, I don't know. And, and we started talking, you know, think about all the aisles that get packed with people. Think about, um, you know, just the going into a booth and getting a giveaway or talking to somebody in a booth. It's going to mean a, a different way of approaching that, you know, hopefully by June 1. We'll have this straightened out. We'll have it figured out. We'll have a we'll have a plan in place. And besides the the pigs, you guys got four brand new goats. Not four. There's two. Oh, two. Yeah, they they arrived via the AAA Mobile Glass out of Victoria, Kansas, which is my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, their company. Were they in the van? Yeah, they were in the van <laughs> because they had. To- they had to bring us a brand new side window for the pickup to be replaced. Yeah, so let's tell everybody the story about the side window of the pickup, shall we? <laughs> I don't know if my husband will want me to tell it, but I don't think he listens anyway, so. <laughs> the oldest had a BB gun that he got for his birthday a few years ago. He had it, got it taken away because he shot his brother in the back with it a year ago. And he just recently got it back and but he took it with him because he was with his dad and he wanted something to do and not be bored, which is fine. He was shooting beer cans or whatever and not a big deal. The little one finds out that that's what's going down and he wants to shoot the gun. So his dad set him up the same way. You know, shoot the can. Don't point it at anybody. He uh, <laughs> evidently got bored shooting cans and decided shooting the driver's side window out of the pickup would be a good idea. Oh, man. <laughs> And when asked if it was an accident or if he did it on purpose, he said he did it on purpose. So, oh, kids. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, I tell you what, um, y- y'all are just, you are a brave woman for having two boys. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I always said I wanted boys because they'd be less dramatic than girls. Yeah, right. Well, I think girls would probably be cheaper in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I tell you what, um, about the only thing that I can say is I, that's going on in my household right now is I have two bunnies that have decided that my yard is Shangri-La for them. And as much as I like, you know, urban livestock and, and wildlife and all of that, I'm not really fond of the fact that they are digging up the mulch out of my flower bed. And every morning I rake the mulch back in and every evening I come out and it's all everywhere all over again i don't know why they're digging i don't know why they're burrowing i don't know what they're trying to eat but the little buggers need to go find a home somewhere else (laughs) and let me tell you rabbits do they dig (laughs) i just hope that they find a home before they decide to make a home and you know make babies because i don't want baby rabbits around here man they probably already did oh awesome (laughs) just awesome it is springtime, you know. <laughs> well, and Maggie Mayhem is not on board with rabbits in her in her part of the world, and she is raising a ruckus. And, and at this point, I'm pretty certain the neighbors are going to write a letter campaign about me. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, you know, it's good for us to laugh because I, th- I don't think we've been able to laugh very much in the last couple of weeks. And I think we're, we're starting to feel a little bit more back to normal again, you know, it, it's starting to feel like the, the ship's kind of right side up again. Doesn't it feel that way to you, Kayleen? I sure hope so. I've reached my limit. <laughs> I think we all have. And fortunately, you know, Kansas has got this uh, plan in place to uh, phase us back into normalcy of some sort. Um, we'll just take it one day at a time. That's what we always do. And that's what we hope you, our listeners are doing right now is taking it one day at at a time and, um, love to hear from you about that. Right. Right. So how are you folks doing out there? Drop us a line at HPJ talk at HPJ.com and let us know or call us at the office 1-800-452-7171. 
And do us a favor and head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. In this week's episode, we'll bring you the stories you might have missed in the May 4th print edition. We'll have a chat with Oklahoma's Congressman Frank Lucas about his bipartisan push to get answers from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's investigation into packing plants. And Kayleen will bring us the latest on grain markets and we'll have our final thoughts. We're all safe and sound, and we hope you are too. And thanks for riding along with us here on HPJ Talk. story. Arkansas farmers switch to cover crops keeps family farming for another generation. Adam Chappell explained their situation further in this cover story. He knows cotton only like a farmer who lives in farms near a town called Cotton Plant, Arkansas, possibly could. For four generations, the Chappell family has raised cotton just like their neighbors have since before the Civil War. Conventional wisdom and generations of cotton farmers say that there's only one way to raise a cotton crop, and that's to use tillage and crop protection inputs, no matter the cost. Chapel was a featured speaker at the 2020 Soil Health and Trade Show in Salina, Kansas in January. Yeah, Kayleen, with that story, it was really great um, being able to listen to him and and see how cover crops and and really, like he says, he, he, he describes it, their backs were against the wall. They just couldn't afford... Um, to the the high cost of inputs to use tillage to um, plant cotton like everybody else does according to conventional wisdom, and so he started looking around and he found um, the answers in a YouTube video from a pumpkin grower up north, and he said, "Well, hey, if there's a if there's some if it works for pumpkins, surely cover crops will work for cotton," and so he. Uh, started using a cereal rye in um, in a cover crop situation, and he is getting the same, if not better, yields of cotton plants that are on cotton acres that he had in the conventional way. Uh, he is, you know, seeing some soil improvements. He's adding livestock into the mix to diversify his operation. They are actually operating on fewer acres now but they're more efficient with those acres. And honestly, he said, you know, they, they had to make sure that economically this worked because they are all sharecropping. They don't own any of their ground. And so um, they had to make all of this go past their, uh, their landlords. And uh, he said, not only have they stopped buying um, cotton that uses high that has uh, technology fees attached to it um, but they're using the cover crops to help control weeds it's saving them thousands of dollars just on weed control alone especially in an area where um, Palmer amaranth has taken over and so it's a it's a really interesting story to see a farmer that has figured out how to use the the tools and the knowledge to the best advantage and like he says there's nothing wrong with you know, the old way, uh, it just wasn't going to work out for them. And this is a way that they can keep going for another generation. So I I thought that was a a pretty valid um, thing to to share in the journal. So uh, also, Lacey Newland had our main story on page three, bread and flour industry rising to the COVID challenge. Uh, When making bread, following the directions and sticking to the recipe is key. You have to add the right amount of yeast, allow it to rise in a warm place and bake it to the appropriate amount of time. For the bread and flour industry, following strict protocols, monitoring employee health, and keeping up with product demand have kept them on track, getting America through the COVID-19 pandemic, one peanut butter and jelly sandwich at a time. Uh, Lacey talked with Christine Cochran, executive director of the Grains Foods Foundation, and Ms. Cochran said that uh, the flour and bread industry are working to produce enough products to meet the shift in demand and still juggle safety precautions. Every baker that Cochran has spoke to has started proactively planning to work to secure their supply chains as well in advance of the demand shift, guaranteeing that food quality and safety will not be compromised. 
quote, moreover, we have seen at least two major companies, Flowers Foods and the Kroger Company, award appreciation bonuses to their workers and independent contractors for their commitment to keeping operations running, end quote. On the Opinions and Editorials page, web editor Shauna Romo's column, Making Census Count for Rural America, stresses the importance of filling out the census despite all that's going on in the world right now. The results of the 2020 census are used to allocate hundreds of billions of dollars in federal funding to communities all over the country. Seymour clearly writes in the Washington Whispers column, politicians, they're just like us. How many legislators are dealing with stay-at-home orders, schoolwork, and raising children? And finally, editor Dave Bergmeier has a book review detailing Feeding the People, the Politics of a Potato by Rebecca Earle. Uh, Kayleen has a story about how the positive cases of COVID-19 jumped in Ford County with an interview with Dodge City Doctor R.C. Trotter in her story, Dodge City Doctor Gives Insight as Positive COVID-19 Cases Increase. Doc Trotter explained how and why the number of cases jumped dramatically during the last few weeks of April in the county. And if you haven't done so already, you might check out that interview that Kayleen conducted with Dr. Trotter at the end of April. Uh, it would be the April 27th episode of HBJ Talk. Elsewhere in the journal, there's a slate of stories covering the COVID-19 pandemic. Contributor David Murray has a story about how farmers are stressed despite the strength in credit institutions. I have a story about how the meat processing workforce in Dodge City is facing more cases, while Lacey Newland has a story about other packing plants in Southwest Kansas. Jenny has a story about President Trump's order for meatpacking plants to stay open as well. Read more on the variety of ag issues facing farmers and ranchers in the print High Plains Journal or look for it online anytime at www.hpj.com. And folks, you'll see that we are running early bird special discounts on registration for our Cattle You and Trade Show July 29th and 30th in Dodge City. Attendee registration is just $85 until June 1. Don't miss your chance to join us at Cattle You. Visit www.cattleu.net. If you have a response to something you've read or heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We want to hear from you. to HPJ Talk, and with us this week is Congressman Frank Lucas of Oklahoma. Congre- Congressman Lucas, welcome to HPJ Talk. It is always lovely to talk to you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> now, you are a familiar champion of agriculture on Capitol Hill, not only because of all of the work you've done on the Ag Committee, um, but you are from the great state of Oklahoma, and your family also ranches and raises beef cattle, so you are one of... Uh, of a handful of members on the Hill that have a very uh, in-depth knowledge of the ag issues that you face. Absolutely, Jennifer. Linda and I are cow-calf operators. Uh, we're on a piece of property that's been in the family since 1912. Linda runs the farm. She refers to it as a ranch. I refer to it as a farm while I'm uh, in Washington, D.C. when we're in session. In a typical year, about nine months out of the year, of course, it's not typical anymore with the Corona-19 issues and all the other struggles we're facing. But the beef cattle business is my real business, and I was a cattleman before I was a far, uh, member of Congress, and I'll be a cattleman long after I'm a member of Congress someday, too. Well, that warms our hearts out here in, in the High Plains, sir. Um, now, you are authoring or co-authoring a letter to Secretary Sonny Perdue calling on him and the USDA to expedite the investigation into the cattle market's reactions, not only to the fire in 2019 at Holcomb, Kansas, and at the Tyson Fresh Meats plant, but also this current cattle market reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic and and the stay-at-home orders and such. Maybe, um, Maybe talk a little bit about why it is critical that we get this investigation, um, you know, ramp it up and and kind of uh, put a shot in the arm to it. Because, frankly, cattle futures fell 29% from January to April. Meanwhile, beef prices that I saw on our shelves, for example, here in Dodge City, they kept rising, um, if you could find beef at all. 
So can you explain for our listeners why this is a critical matter for our cattlemen? You're absolutely right. It is life or death economically for cow-calf producers. And maintaining a healthy and viable cow-calf program means that ultimately we'll have cattle for the the wheat pasture stalker guys, ladies. We'll have beef then to go to the feedlots. We'll have the beef ultimately through the processing plants. And whether it's in restaurants, when all of this COVID-19 is under control, or on your table at home, we will continue to have wonderful, nutritious, healthy product that we've enjoyed that uh, has made us in some ways unique in North America. Mm -hmm. That said, the letter that I've authored to Secretary Purdue that I'm now soliciting signatures from both my House of Republican and House Democrat colleagues basically thanks USDA and the Secretary for everything they've done to this point. Uh, The MFP payments and the disaster money that they're about to allocate hopefully in the month of May big chunk of that going to beef cattle producers. It very politely and firmly reminds the secretary that he has an ongoing investigation since the fire at the packing plant in western Kansas in 2018, and that the issues there that cause concern among my producers, the seemingly disconnect between live cattle prices and what's being paid at the packing plant door for live cattle, versus what's being sold in the uh, box beef market or the product that winds up with grocers and retailers, there doesn't seem for a second time in a few years to be any direct connection or correlation. Mm-hmm. We want the secretary to accelerate the investigation and to include the most recent turn of events in the investigation, as he said he would, and bring back to us the results. If there are indeed problems with how the beef market system works from from live cattle all the way to the consumer's table, if there's a particular set of problems in the acquisition and packing and selling of the products, then we need to know that as policy makers in the United States House of Representatives. If there's a problem and they determine that's a problem, then they need to promptly and thoroughly explain that to us in detail so that we can respond. There's much suspicion out there among my producers and consumers that we don't have enough competition and that over time, the way cattle are, live cattle are purchased, the way they're processed and marketed, maybe doesn't reflect uh, uh, traditional market conditions or supply and demand issues. And that if that is indeed the case, something that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I don't know what secretary and USDA will determine, but I want them to make a determination based on the best and greatest possible available information, because my producers, my neighbors, and my neighbors, I believe in Kansas and Texas, mm-hmm. they're talking to me, believe that something is dramatically out of whack. Now, that said, there are many components to the marketing process. Another issue that draws great angst amongst my producers is the futures market whether it's in Chicago or in other places around the world, why live cattle futures contracts seem, and feeder cattle contracts seem to deviate so much from what they believe reality to be. Mm -hmm. That's another one of those challenging issues because the speculators, the investors, who put their money into the market have a dramatic effect, yes, on the futures market. If you take all of the investors out, call them speculators out of the market, then that's going to be much as what happened in the stock market when those same people withdrew. Or as one of my neighbors said, if we don't have somebody to buy those futures contracts and we're trying to hedge cattle, then we're not going to be able to hedge. And there goes a valuable tool that cattlemen have to make sure that they can uh, cover their costs and and have a little bit extra over to uh, keep the household going.
and they all tried to rush in and buy a contract to protect themselves, futures markets are like everything else. Not only do you have to have a willing seller, but you've got to have a willing buyer. When the speculators or the investors, however you want to describe it, pulled out of the stock market the way they pulled out of the futures market, it was like letting the air out of the balloon. So there are several challenges we face here. But the bottom line is this, mm-hmm. and why I am so concerned about cow calf producers, and I'm so concerned about the smoker operators, they create and they prepare the raw product that ultimately goes to the feedlot, that ultimately goes to the packing plant, that ultimately goes to the distribution center, that ultimately either then lines up in a restaurant or at somebody's dinner table. If you don't have the raw product, then all those other stages don't matter. So we have to protect the beginning of this chain, the, the cow-calf people, the stalker operators. Mm-hmm. Now, in fairness, part of the other problem we faced in COVID-19 is that we have a just-in-time supply chain on food here, like every other form of manufacturing in the country. We've learned to produce what we needed, when we needed, just in time to meet the demand at the other end and not have substantial stockpiles. When COVID-19 caused social distancing over the, basically the entire country, which closed restaurants, think about the percentage of the beef, or for that matter, other meat, that went to restaurants. Yeah. And a restaurant uh, product is different than what you buy to take home and grill or put in a hamburger helper. It tends to be bigger packs. It tends to be higher value cuts. Think of the ribeyes versus the hamburger that mm-hmm. most of us eat at home. And when the restaurants came to a grinding halt, it's very difficult for the processors to redirect that. That's why in many of the big restaurant chains, and I've seen these advertisements, if you'll go to a steakhouse now on the East Coast or on the West Coast, they'll sell you so many ribeyes or T-bones. Mm-hmm. They'll sell you so many potatoes, and they'll sell you so many carrots. What they are buying in bulk, highest quality, and they're not able to sell because at least up until right now in most states they've been closed, they're trying to sell to consumers. And that's created a misbalance between the people going to the grocery store and trying to buy X number of five-pound packs of hamburger to put in their freezer. It's created a mismatch, so that's the problem. Mm-hmm. And then, Jennifer, right now, because of COVID-19, we have one other issue, and that is the health of our workforce in these processing plants. And that's yes, not indeed. just beef. That's pork. That's poultry. That's the whole gamut. And when you have people doing physical labor, working in a, in a group environment, working shift after shift, the potential for something that is as aggressive as COVID-19, the virus seems to be, is, is just, it's just amazing how aggressive it is. Mm-hmm. That said, when those work lines in those processing plants have to reduce the shift or they only have partial staffing, uh, again, everything's designed to work at maximum efficiency, to work at a certain steady flow. That then backs up all the input. Uh, we're really in a difficult situation uh, as producers out there. Given time, the processors will rebalance between home and restaurant, and in places like Oklahoma, we're beginning the process of very limited, in a very limited way, reopening business. So the restaurants will slowly come back online here and increase that demand. But we're just hitting a perfect storm. It's just it's just affected everything in the country. It, well, it's almost as if we have a, a clog in the sink, and we've got water exactly. continuing to run in that sink. And until we stop the, the flow of water and we get the clog out of place, we're in a mess of a jam, aren't we? Exactly. Now, my producers will look you in the eye and say, that's exactly right. That's the problem we face now in this pandemic. But then they will say, but think about 2018 when you had one plant that went down and the chain reaction at that brought uh, and the dramatic reduction in uh, cash prices for cattle going to be processed. Then they say, but Congressman, there may be a pattern here. Mm -hmm. We had a hiccup 
and it did this price-wise. Now we've had a catastrophe, and oh my goodness, it's doing this to us. But there's a pattern here, Congressman. We want to know if there's a problem. And if there's a problem, what can you do about it? That's why I wrote the letter and soliciting uh, signatures from my colleagues in the United States House to say, Secretary, you've got the economist, you've got the market analyst, you know what the Packers and Stalker Act is, you understand the law. If there's a problem, then acknowledge it, lay it out, and we will work on fixing it. But we need that initial action, and I'm hopeful that we'll get a prompt response from the Secretary, and I hope we'll have a thorough and complete report. If the product that comes to us in Congress uh, doesn't meet the expectation of being the thorough document that we need, and honestly, Jennifer, I can't say with certainty what we'll get from the Secretary of the Department. Mm-hmm. I just know they've got an obligation to provide it, but we'll respond. And whatever the document is, we'll respond appropriately. But bottom line, I suppose, is this in many ways. As a member of Congress and as a CalCAF operator, I have a responsibility to pay attention to what's happening to my constituents, my neighbors, and yes, my own household. And my neighbors and my constituents are telling me there looks like a pattern here in 2018 and 2020. They want to make sure everybody has enough to eat. Mm-hmm. They want to make sure that everyone who works in the supply chain from the beginning to the end has a decent job and can keep their jobs. But we don't want to be whipsawed and pounded around. Uh, well, now, we deserve to be treated like the people who produce the, the beginning product. Mm-hmm. Well, now, Congressman, do we have enough? Um, you know, one of the things that we learned in, in 2018 is, you know, we were able to kind of float out the capacity to some other plants um, after the fire. We were able to, you know, kind of ease out some of that and, and other plants were able to add a shift and do that. We don't obviously have that capability now. And in fact, we've heard reports that there are um, that there are inspectors, federal inspectors, that are are testing positive and cannot come into the plants for one reason or another, or they're falling ill themselves. Um, do we have enough staff to be able to um, to to inspect the the products that are on the line? Do we have any possibility of either you know changing some rules temporarily to allow our smaller processors, our boutique um, butchers, to be able to have a little bit more leeway so that they can take up some of of the the massive amounts of, of livestock that need to be um, processed, you know, quickly? Fair question, Jennifer. And part of the response bills for COVID-19, we provided money for additional inspection and part-time people and additional hires, mm-hmm. whatever is required. Uh, these are demanding, highly skilled uh, positions being inspectors. And understand, maintaining the confidence of our fellow Americans in their food supply is the most important thing. Exactly. So we have to work as hard as we can to maintain the high-quality inspection system now. We may stretch it a little bit, but we can't do anything that brings into question that stamp mm-hmm. of approval on the product. We just can't do that. The president issued an order, executive order, based on the 1950 Defense Production Act, which most people think of as what you have, you use during wartime to make planes and tanks and bombs and bullets and make sure the trains and the trucks move smoothly. That's all very true. But the president's executive order clearly notes that the food supply is a matter of national security, also national defense. His act does will not put soldiers in the packing plants, mm-hmm. but it will give uh, processors flexibility in dealing with state or local government. Not every state, not every community has the same attitude about these facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I believe the president's attempting to protect the process and keep it moving forward. But that said, if you operate a facility, whatever kind of livestock you're packing, not only do you have an obligation to the consumers to provide them with a high-quality, safe, inspected, 
pay a fair price for that product from the people who produce it to give it to you. So you'll have something in the future, Bruce. But you've got a very uh, important element called that workforce. Mm-hmm. Because working in one of these facilities, and many of our listeners have uh, toured or been through one in one species or another, it's hard work. It is it physically is. demanding work in cold conditions. I mean, we, they've got to work hard to protect their staff, whether that's uh, focusing on testing or how they handle sick leave or whatever else. They've got to protect their workforce. Or they won't have anything. You know, it. When, when, when this virus first flared up, my dad, who's a cattleman from way back, you know, we're fifth generation right here, you know, uh, dad and I were talking about this. And he said, well, I just don't understand. I said, well, dad, remember, whenever we had a new, new bull that we brought onto the place or a new pen of cattle or something, we didn't just dump them into the herd. We set them aside in a pen until everybody kind of got their coffin out of the way and they, they, you know, took to water and took to feed. We don't commingle cattle, and when we when we start commingling households in a setting like a, a packing plant, and then we send them back out to the household where there are maybe you know two adults and a and a grandma and an aunt and you know a couple of kids. You've got three three elementary schools represented. You've got two packing plants represented. A Walmart worker represented. All of those places are are touch points for the virus, and so it, it's it's kind of. Um, I had somebody bring up to me the other day. They said, "Well, why aren't we setting up some sort of housing for plant workers? They stay in a house. They stay in the housing in the collective housing uh, for twenty eight days, kind of like an uh, an oil rig out in the middle of of the Gulf. You go out there, you're on the rig for seven days, you come home for seven days." You work 12-hour shifts, you, you come back, and you have your seven days at home or 14 days on, 14 days off. Um, do you think that might be a, a valid solution? Have you have you heard anything along those lines from our, our friends in the packing industry or anything along that? I have not had a direct conversation on that particular subject. I would tell you it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But it's something that management has to make the decision to do. And also remember... Those roughnecks, those service people who go out into the Gulf or used to go up into the cold parts of Alaska for those long cycles, they were paid substantially more because of the hardship that was placing on them and their families Mm -hmm. because they were gone from their loved ones. They couldn't go home. Those are things that have to be addressed. We should also remember, though, that the sanitation within our plants are exceptional. That's the thing they work the hardest at is making sure every surface is clean in every one of these processing plants. So the question is not what's going on in the plant that is affecting the workers. It's the process of interacting with each other, coming to work, being at work and leaving, because they're cleaning those plants as they always clean those plants to make sure the product we get at the store or at the restaurant is safe. So. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of things we have to think outside the box. Now, from the scientific community, there's frantic work being done by literally dozens and dozens of major companies on the vaccine program. There's work being done by dozens of companies on an antibody program where you take people who have had COVID-19, survived COVID-19, go through one donated plasma from them, blood from them, and pick out the antibodies that's fought off the COVID-19 and synthetically produce those. Some of the stuff, like the vaccine, may still be a year away. The antibodies might be a possibility in the fall, uh, and that doesn't count therapeutics, drugs to help you overcome it once you're infected. So scientific communities work as hard as they can to come up with a real way to hammer this. We just have to figure out how to keep the food flowing and people going to work uh, until we get to that point. And do it in a way that, again, is equitable to producers at the beginning, equitable to the plant turning uh, and the feedlots, and equitable to the, to the places turning the feeder, the stunt cattle into steaks and chops and hamburger and all that sort of stuff to distribute. That's the balance we've got to work through right now. And my producers are concerned that in the way the system's flowing, the producers, the people at the beginning, are the goats. 
Mm -hmm. I want USDA to tell us, is there something going on? Is there a structural problem? Is, are there issues under existing federal law that can make this work better? Or if not, tell us what the problems are and we'll come up with solutions and pass laws to make the solutions happen. Well, I tell you what, Congress, Congressman Lucas, um, we are so fortunate up and down the high plains that we have somebody like you in Congress, a, a cattleman that can understand these issues and explain them to your colleagues. Because we know that if it's less than 2% of us actually out here actually uh, raising the, the food, fiber, and fuel of, of our nation and our world, um, there's even fewer representation of, of agriculture on Capitol Hill. Uh, when you're talking with your colleagues on both sides of the aisle, um, how do they understand this and, and what's how do you get through to them that this is a critical um, a, a critical issue, not only for your constituents, um, but for their constituents as well? The majority of my colleagues in the United States House, I think the same can be said for the other body of the Senate, want to do the right thing. They want to make good decisions. They want to positively help move the country and the people in this country along forward. The problem is... There are so few of us left anymore who have any direct connection to production ag. If you look at how congressional redistricting is done, it's not based on geography. It's based on number of people. That's why the great first district of Kansas, my goodness, starts almost in eastern Kansas and goes all the way to Colorado. That's why the third district of Oklahoma that I represent is a little bit of suburbs in Tulsa and a little bit of suburbs in Oklahoma City. But it's the whole entire northwest half of the state of Oklahoma almost. Mm -hmm. My colleagues, even though many of them may have districts that go out into the countryside, tend to be urban folks. Nothing wrong with that. It's just they don't have any experience. So I've spent virtually my entire career trying to explain to the folks I serve, both ours and these alike, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, trying to explain to my colleagues alike where that meal on their breakfast plate or their lunch plate or their dinner plate or as we would call it in Oklahoma, their supper plate, <laughs> came from. How did it get there? What were the steps involved? And oh, by the way, do you understand how many inspections that had? Do you understand how many hands that went through? Do you understand how careful we were with the breeding practices, the feeding practices, the processing practices to make those T-bone steaks look so consistent or to make that hamburger the exact percentage of fat or lean that you want? you grill or you cook or whatever you do with it, uh, that's, that's what I've spent most of my career on in doing it in a calm, thoughtful, rational way. You don't attract flies with vinegar. You don't get congressmen's attention by screaming at them. And my colleagues trust me. And I'm very careful with that trust. And that's why I thought for some time before I put this letter together, because I need we need to fire a shot across the bow at USDA, take action, take the right action, take complete action, and let us then step up to the next level, whatever that may be. So we'll see. I'm in the early stages of soliciting signatures. The fact that we're not in regular session in the House just makes this so much harder. Because so much of this work, I would approach my 434 colleagues on the floor, and I would have a discussion with them. I'd explain it. I'd have my staff send it to their staff. They would read it. member would read it. We'd sign on. Now I'm doing everything by remote control, and it's just harder. But like this letter, it's got to be done. Yes, yes, indeed, sir. Now, you and your colleagues, you're all staying safe now and uh, and making sure that you're, you've got plenty of hand sanitizer and wearing masks and, and taking care of your health and, and your, your staff's health and your, your constituents' health and we appreciate that because continuity of government is key, right? Absolutely. We all need to be careful. And I know they say a third of us or 40% will never get it. I know they say of the people who get the COVID-19, 80% will think it's a mild cold and they never even know it. But we have to be considerate of that 20% who will get it, who will require major medical treatments, hospitalization. And of that 20%, think of that half or one percent looking at how you look at the whole picture won't get over be concerned about the old the unfirm those dealing with uh, 
uh, autoimmune diseases, we have to be careful for them. Even if the lion's share will keep on going, we have to think about our neighbors. Yes, indeed, sir. Yes, indeed. Well, hey, thank you so very much for joining us today on HPJ Talk. Um, any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Just take a deep breath. I say to all my friends and neighbors, we've got a roller coaster ahead of us. There's going to be some good days and there's going to be a lot of bad days. We will get through this. Just take a deep breath. Well, thank you so very much, Congressman Lucas. And I am taking a deep breath and, and, uh, we here at High Plains Journal, we're going to keep putting the paper out every week and, and making sure that our readers, your constituents, our neighbors together all have the news that they need. And if you want to hear, thank you, sir. And if you want to hear more on um, the topic that we just talked about today, you can always reach us online anytime at www.hpj.com. We'll see you on the trail, Congressman Lucas. Down the trail. from Dodge City's Pride Egg Resources on April 28th. Corn was down at $2.83. Wheat was down at $4.32. Milo was down at $2.93. And soybeans were down at $7.31. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, www.hpj.com slash sign up. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Be sure to watch for the Farm and Ranch Management Storage and Building issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes May 11th with a story from Lacey Newland. And look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com slash podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again, folks, for riding along with us as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, Fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. The headlights on both ends of my day. This country life is for me. Ride with us, hey.